before we dive into the episode, I want to talk about my company, Virtual Assistant Staffing Agency. We do exactly what it says. We staff virtual assistants for business owners wishing to scale. Whether you need help with administrative assistance, bookkeeping, cold calling, content creation, data entry, lead generation, or even social media management, we can hire the perfect virtual assistant for your team. And the best part, it's only around $4 an hour. If you're interested in learning more, head over to our website, www.vastaffing.agency and book your demo call. Now, onto the show. What's up, everybody? My name is Brady Morgan. I am the host of the Entrepreneurism Podcast. I'm here with Casey Chohan. He's the founder at Together CFO and a writer for Forbes Magazine. Casey, how's it going, man? Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on, man. I know we've been trying to get this on the books for a while, but before we dive into Together CFO, and that's sort of like a digital CFO service, and then your experience with Forbes, I always ask this first question, what is the dumbest thing you've ever spent money on? It's got to be artwork. <laughs> I, uh, I made the brutal decision of impulse buying some art, and then when I got it home and showed it to my wife, it was a thumbs down, and it pretty much uh, got donated to somebody in our family rather than me throwing it away but effectively it was a big waste of money yeah yeah you know I, i'm not too much in artwork i have a uh i have one painting in my office and it's literally just a podcast logo that's all i have super simple you can't hate it right so but that's awesome but now let's dive into your story right you you are the founder as a digital cfo service i'm sure we're going to get really deep into that because i have a finance background myself so i appreciate those services second is your experience with forbes right forbes is a huge company they're a huge publication and they're doing a lot of great things so how did you get into this entrepreneurial world started at a young age my father was always very entrepreneurial so i grew up around it always seen him working on various projects and just generally had a very curious mind growing up. Always liked to do different things and test myself in different areas. So that's pretty much the root of where it all started and then progressed obviously through university, through accounting qualifications, a few international moves, as you can tell from England and not from America. So Climbed the corporate ladder for eight years with a big S&P 500 company called Flowserve. They're like a $4 billion company. And then uh, in 2016, called that a day and started my own business and realized there was a big gap in the market for companies that were scaling or wanted to scale, but didn't necessarily have that uh, financial strategy in place. Right. Yeah. You know, that that's close to home for me because I know finance is a pivotal part of any business. But a lot of business owners don't take it that seriously, right? They think they have their idea and that's all they need. But something that I always say a lot, you know, you can make a lot of money, but if you don't have a strategy in place, you can quickly lose all that money. So within Together CFO, what do you actually offer? I know you said you have, um, I, I would assume you're a CPA. I would assume you have other things that allow you to deal with taxes legally. So what do you exactly do for your clients? Yeah, so I'm personally not a CPA, but we have CPAs on our team. I'm the English equivalent of that. It's where I did all my studying. Uh, But yeah, we have a full team of CPAs, EAs, legal attorneys, business law. But generally, what we do is we help um, business owners optimize their taxes and their finances. Gotcha. 
if I had to put it into one sentence. Yeah. Well, I know taxes is a, a major issue for a lot of businesses. And reason being is, you know, I'm only 24. So a lot of my close network is around my age. And coming out of college, you don't really learn about that that much unless you are going into accounting. So that's a big issue there. Something that's congruent, not only among business owners, but just individuals in general is taxes. And unfortunately, people don't understand it. So when you're dealing with these clients specifically about taxes, what's the number one thing you have to actually help them understand? There's different rules that apply in different legislations, which back to your point, you are not taught any of this at school, right? No one's Mm. teaching you how to become an entrepreneur, or maybe they are now, but generally speaking, not how to do your taxes. Financial strategy is pretty much an accounting and a business major, which a lot of entrepreneurs don't have. But what we come in and teach you and show our clients is there's different rules that apply in different systems. 99% of people default into the norm, which is the 1040 system, where you go to, you do your books at the end of the year, you then sit with your CPA, you see what the latest deductions are and the latest loopholes are and away you go. Now, that's pretty much okay if you're not making that much income. If you're under, let's say, a threshold of 200000 in net income, there's enough loopholes out there and enough strategies that an average CPA can pretty, pretty much optimize you and your business. What we target is the people that are above that 200K in net income threshold uh, that are paying a lot of money in taxes and therefore need something a little bit more advanced. Right, right. What we do specifically is we use the same structures as the top 1% elite are using and we apply that to the next level down. Right. You know, this is an interesting topic because you being in this world that deals with taxes, the average American hates that the elite use loopholes, right? Because they don't have probably the ability to use it. It's not, it's, I know we're getting semantics here, but it's not loopholes. Loopholes are temporary based on what the government incentivizes you to do. Right. The, The elite and the rich, they don't do that. They have a tax strategy set up in place that allows you to uh, pay your fair share of taxes is the way the IRS writes it. Mm -hmm. And that is regardless of if you're making a million dollars or a hundred million, you can use that same structure if it's set up right to optimize the taxes. So from your perspective, and I want to hear it from someone who is an actual, uh, I would say expert in this space, you know, Amazon didn't pay any in taxes last year and people are throwing a fit over. I, I think it's, they're just smart, right? They're hiring the best CPAs or like you said, an average CPA can probably find these strategies. And also, you know, the latest story is Donald Trump paid $750 in taxes and people are pissed about it. So from your perspective, you're probably not that surprised. What are these elite people actually doing to spend that much lower in taxes than the average American? So yeah, you touched on some great points there. So let's use Amazon as an example. Uh, They do it very differently, right? So Amazon's a huge corporation, um, as we know, globally. They've got a lot more pull and they they effectively use R&D credits and development credits to mitigate their taxes. So that's very different to Donald Trump, who's using depreciation and real estate losses to, to mitigate his losses. 
of his taxes. But the but on top of all that, these guys, Jeff Bezos, Donald Trump, even the Hiltons, Clintons, you name them, Bushes, Kennedys, Rothschilds, all these families yeah. have family offices and their structure is that they have these systems in place, which is all in the 1041 world, which is trusts and estates, complex trusts, multi-tiered complex trusts that lead to a private foundation. And that way, you've probably seen a couple of years back that the a lot of these billionaires are pledging 99% of their wealth to right. charities. That's a big scam as well. Because what they're doing is they're taking a charitable donation, which is 100% write-off in their corporations, and they're then giving it to a charity that they fully control. So let's use Mark Zuckerberg as an example. He donated X amount of billions to the uh, Zuckerberg and Chan private foundation, which he fully controls. Right. And it's the same with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. So Warren Buffett uh, and Bill Gates, Warren Buffett donated, I think, $3 billion to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And they then took that $3 billion and bought shares of Berkshire Hathaway the very next day. And it's like, what the hell's going on? And then Bill Gates was, up until very recently, a board member of Berkshire Hathaway. So it's like wow. they make it sound as if they're doing good. And don't get me wrong, a lot of these foundations do do good. So we don't want to take away from that, but it is just a big tax strategy. Let's make that very clear. Is that, is that, I mean, obviously it's legal, but the ethics behind it is something that's, it's hard for me to wrap my head around because, you know, the let's donate 99% of our wealth over time. That sounds like I'm being a really ethical person, but when you get into the nitty gritty of it, it's really not that way. Right. Yeah. And it's all to do with ownership versus control and, when they donate that money, they are giving up ownership of the money, right? right? But they are in full control of the vehicle that controls those funds. So really, they're taking it out of one pocket and putting it into the other pocket. And then as a result, they're able to 100% or use it as 100% tax write-off. And like a lot of these people, more importantly, want the media spin of, hey, I'm such a good guy. I'm doing this. Right. I'm giving back. Um, so that's probably the angle that they're using. And along the way, they get some huge, huge tax benefits. So with these charitable donations, do you think the IRS is ever going to put a cap on what can actually be deducted on their taxes? Or is it ever just going to be whatever? No, why would they? Because the, the whole point of doing a donation is that you're doing the greater good. You're doing now, good, yeah. The whole purpose of it, and let's just put this into context, the percentage of people that even know about these strategies or know someone who can execute the strategies is very, very low. Right. It's only the top elite that are doing this because they have the the team around them that's able to, one, execute the strategy, two, play by the rules. Because if you do not know the ins and outs of how to run a private foundation and what's classified as gray versus red, you know, you're going to get in trouble. Right. So you need to really have a good team around you and it's not as simple as, oh, I'm just going to donate everything to the private foundation. I'm, I'm simplifying it so that everyone could kind of get a good con concept right, of it. Right. Um, but it's a lot more involved than that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I agree. Like you said, it's for the greater good. So why would they put a cap on it? Because if they put a cap on it, people are probably less apt to donate, right? And but the since you're working... People aren't doing that, right? The majority of people are donating for a good purpose and for a right, good Right, exactly. 
And it's just the the few percent just happen to be the billionaires that are using it as a tax advantage. Right, right. So let's backtrack for a second. At Together CFO, you mentioned y'all work with individuals who are over that $200,000 mark. And within those, their businesses, what is a strategy that y'all implement that pretty much anyone can implement? It's just not used that much. So anyone can implement this 1041 complex trust strategy. Um, There's just a big barrier to entry in terms of there's a lot of legal paperwork that needs to get set up and implemented on the front end. Um, But once that is set up, you're good to go. Um, So anyone can implement this. I think to answer your your question more directly, there's a lot of loopholes that people can use at a lower level, such as renting out a portion of their house, using that as a home office. Uh, Real estate is a simple one. You know, if you could, if you have excess funds by real estate, you can depreciate it. Um, Things like that, you know, there's lots of them out there. Hire your children, put them on payroll, you know, that type of thing. And you're playing <laughs> with your parents. Yeah. You could Google all them and get all those basic loopholes. There's, there's no special sauce in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. I know there are a lot of different strategies out there. You know, a book that uh, a lot of people have read is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You might've read it too, Fantastic but book, yeah. he talks about real estate, right? And how there's tons of tax advantages to real estate. But something that he talks about, and since you've read it, you'll understand it, is is the idea of phantom income, right? How people will buy assets with other people's money. And if you think about it from this perspective, and and this is purely just my audience because I know you understand it. If I buy something for $20,000 of my hard-earned cash, I didn't just spend $20,000. I probably spent, let's just say, $35,000, $15,000 in taxes, assuming you live in a state with with state income tax. Now, what the strategic people do is they will take borrowed twenty thousand dollars, they'll invest in an asset, and instead of spending twenty thousand dollars of their own money plus whatever taxes, they just spent twenty thousand dollars of someone else's money and didn't have to spend the money on those taxes, right? Yeah. So, within strategies that y'all talk about at Together CFO, does phantom income ever come into play there? Yeah, that, that that's a good question. Firstly. And when you boil that strategy down, all we're talking about is leverage and we're leveraging other people's money. So we're taking debt and you've got to have good credit. You've got to have a business plan, you know, all these other things in place in order to do that. But generally speaking, yeah, it's a fantastic strategy and it can be used by the masses for pretty much anything, right? As long as you can guarantee that, not guarantee, but get a good ROI where the investor who's giving you the money you meet their criteria because that could be private money. It can be institutional money. All you've really got to do is convince one person or institution to give you that leverage. Right. That's what it really boils down to is if you only have 20 grand in this case, do you want to use all 20 grand of it? Or would you rather put two grand down? So you're in for 10% and leverage the other 90%. That makes more sense because then you could do 10 X the deals. Right. 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 You know, and again, you know, going back to the whole school thing, that's something else that's not taught is other people's money, right? I.e. credit, you know, and like, you know, me growing up, uh, my parents said, do not use credit, shy away from credit. It's bad. And it's, it's kind of like the Dave Ramsey approach. And I'm sure you hear this a lot. Dave Ramsey. That's how they were brought up through the great depression. However, that mentality was drilled into them. And it's, 
I can see the pros and cons of everything, of both sides of it. But I think Robert Kiyosaki, he, he laid it out really well in terms of the rat race. You are pushed into this whole economy of finish school, mm-hmm. get a good job, get married, you get a house. And before you know it, you're in so much debt, you can't even try anything else. Because you don't own any of those assets. The bank owns it. If you default your payment, they're going to take the house back. Right. Same with the car. And it's like you perpetuate this whole rat race that you're in. And how do you get out of that? Now, you're totally right. This is not taught at schools, and it really should be, because we need to educate people and open their minds at a really young age so they can make better decisions. And that's what we do with people that have their own businesses. We literally wrap that business with financial metrics so you take the gut feeling out of it and you can make decisions based on real numbers. Exactly. And you know, you know, it's interesting, right? Cause we're not taught to use other people's money. Let's just say credit cards, right? That's essentially a bank's money. We're not taught to use that, but the norm is to finance a car that depreciates immediately when you drive off the lot. So that's the backwards aspect of it is they're not teaching things that can actually make you more money. They're teaching you about things that is solely just from a consumer perspective. I want to buy things that don't actually make me any money. Absolutely. But that's what feeds the system and the economy yep. in the greater good of them controlling you. If you have a huge mortgage payment, a big car payment, so you definitely need a job and you're going to be working for someone. And what happens is the W-2 taxes that come out, you can't get away from any of them. So when we circle it all back around to a tax conversation and we see if you're an employee of somebody, then they're paying taxes, you're paying taxes, it's all going back into the system and it's all funneling around. If you're a business owner, you get different types of deductions, write-offs that you can make compared to a W-2 employee. And then if you're a business owner in the 1041 complex trust world, you can just magnify those deductions and those rules and amplify if you've got the right person and the right team around you. You know, on the topic of a business owner and taxes, you know, I know we talked about taxes a lot, but a question I've gotten in the past, just because I have a finance background and a lot of my network knows that is where, which state is the most tax efficient, right? You know, I'm based in Tennessee. We don't have state income tax. We have a higher sales tax, but as a business owner, the no state income tax is good. I know a lot of other businesses will utilize Wyoming, but I think people have a hard time wrapping their head around. And I'd love for you to dive into this is if, what if I'm in California, New York, how do I open up an LLC in a state that doesn't have state income tax? And how do I legally do that? Oh, that's really simple. You can go to a site like LegalZoom. I've got no affiliations with any of these sites. So just pretty much Google it and get an agent in any of those states that will house your address and forward the mail on and things of that nature and be your representative. Um, but I wouldn't even look at it like that. I would, I would go the next level deeper and say, what's the actual plan? Why are you wanting to do this? Because it may not be the solution to open up in a Wyoming or a Nevada or a Florida or a Delaware, right? Because if you don't have the bigger, wider plan of what's going on, it's hard to just, pinpoint in and say, I'll do this, you're going to save 5% on income tax or whatever the tax that you're trying to mitigate, because you've got to look at it as the full picture. And that's the benefits of doing something in the 1041 world, which is at a federal level rather than a state level. Right. You know, and that leads me to my question, and I'm sure you've seen the news about Biden's tax plan, right? 
about taxing. I believe it was 62% in New York and California, which is where a majority of business owners probably live, right? Yeah. So if I'm living in one of those states, in New York or California, how do I mitigate my risk due to the potential tax increase? Uh, it's super simple. Everyone's flapping over this, but he's only wanting, well, at least the bits that he's released, wanting to tax people that make over, I think it was 400000 a year, right? Or 425000 a year. Yeah. So if you're making less than that, you're not paying that ridiculous. Tax. Right, right. And, and again, back to the strategy that we use, there's no real reason for anyone to be making that much in W-2 income at all, right? If you're a doctor or whatever, you might not be able to get around it. But generally speaking, if you're a business owner, and let's just say you're an S-corp, so you have to pay yourself reasonable compensation salary, you shouldn't be paying yourself that much. It's just a very, very basic strategy if you are, and you're overpaying by tens of thousands. So you need to reduce your reasonable comp down to a fair level, usually around 50 to 100-ish K. And then the distribution you would take out of your company, that would then go into a, a more advanced tax structure. So in reality, if there's anyone smart that's paying over 400K and that doesn't have a tax strategy in place, then they need to speak to someone pretty quickly because no one's going to be paying that tax. That's, that's just for the public. That's his publicity stunt, right? Right. Right. You know, it's interesting too, because I'm assuming there's a tax strategy behind why like a Jeff Bezos only makes $80,000 from Amazon through salary and where it might, why a Mark Zuckerberg only makes $1. You know, people are saying, Oh, you're, you're taking a low salary. That's very noble of you, but there's probably a strategy in place because of that. Right. Of course. Of course. Like back to what I was saying with W2 versus 1099, if you're a W2 employee, so let's just say Jeff Bezos is a W2 employee, is the CEO of Amazon. And if he if he's getting a CEO salary of Amazon is going to be tens of millions of dollars, right? If right. you're being serious. He's got to pay taxes as W2 income on all of that. There's no there's no two ways around it. If, however, he says, you know what, Bod, let's do a deal. You pay me in shares or stock or other incentives and not W-2 income. And those incentives are what then goes into a corporation and goes into a tax efficient strategy. Whereas his base salary, you are not able to do that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so interesting because people view it in such a different context, but from your perspective, you see behind the reasoning behind this, you know, it's interesting how like Elon Musk made $500 million last year. It wasn't all in compensation. It was in stock options and shares and stuff like that. And it's a very strategic move, right? Like you said, they're, they're probably employing the best CPAs in the world. And they have teams of people dedicated that just work for them. So like when, yeah. when you get into a, a certain level of wealth, call it, let's just use a, a number 40 million. If your net worth is 40 million plus, you will be using what we call a family office or a multifamily office. This is a team of individuals that come together to work on you and your family's portfolio of investments. All the businesses, all the strategies from legal to tax to accounting, all of it fully on you. And that's where you get a smart team that can then deliver tax structures, legal structures, because tax and legal laws 
uh, intertwined, right? You can't just mm. speak to one expert and have a tax conversation without knowing what the legal impacts are because you've got to make sure whatever the tax guy says, the legal team also agrees, right? And if it's two different people that have different views, it's hard. So you get the structure together where they're all working for you with a common goal. And that's what the, that's how the rich uh, and the wealthy are set up most of the time with a family office structure. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think that's a smart move by them as well because they have a dedicated team. I mean, that just means they're going to be optimizing their portfolio that much more. But with Together CFO, let's get back on that. You work with business owners and you help in a lot of different ways, accounting and finance. Within these strategies, do you have almost like a blueprint of how you, you and your team execute when you start working with a new client? Yeah, so it depends because we do three things in our business mainly. One is the CFO side, which is helping companies with financial strategy metrics and understanding the numbers. Two is tax optimization. And three is government contracts. We recently have been uh, awarded um, approval by the US government to bid on government contracts because there's a huge need in the government for these same things that businesses have as well. So they're always behind the curve in that regard. So we will be uh, bidding on some government contracts also. Of those three areas, which one is the most needed? And I'm assuming it's going to be taxes, but I want to hear oh, it. Yeah. All day long, it's the taxes because not everybody needs a CFO, right? So right. when we really drill into that, um, not everybody really wants to aggressively scale or really wants to understand their numbers more than the level at which they're currently at. Like a lot of business owners are not finance people. They don't, it just confuses them, but they have a controller or a bookkeeper that can somewhat explain the actuals and what's going on. And right. that's okay for a lot of people. And that's perfectly fine. What we do is we help those business owners that really want to progress the business to the next level and help them fully digest what's going on, take control of the numbers and the business and move it forward. But by far the, the biggest part of our business is the tax side. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, you hit on a, a very important point that regardless of what a business owner's background is in, knowing the numbers is very, very important, right? And I think when you have a team around you, such as Together CFO or even an internal controller or whatever, you just have to know those numbers some way or another. And I think too many business owners today, right? Especially, let's just mention the online space because they're not brick and mortar and they probably don't really need a the substantial service of together CFO, but they need to understand the numbers some way, somehow, but they yeah. neglect it. They think it's not important. They think I need to just get my business model down. I got to get the marketing down. And the money is what fuels the business, right? That's the thing, yeah. And people just neglect the power of cash flow or the power of other people's money. And they think that they can just get by with just being a really good marketer. And I think that's a dumb strategy and I don't think that businesses, I, I, and you probably know this specific stat. I believe a lot of businesses fail because they just don't understand finance. Yeah, absolutely correct. And the stats back that up. I think it's over 80% of businesses fail, not through lack of profitability, but through lack of cash flow. They don't understand that there's a huge difference between a profit and loss statement and a cash flow statement. And mm -hmm. just because you're showing this fake number of profit at the end of a month or the end of a year, it doesn't mean that that's the number that's going to be in your bank account. Right. It's very different. And people just don't understand that. Um, and yeah, that, that's half of the struggle. And I think people also 
put the power of revenue over the power of profit. And don't get me wrong, revenue is important. But people think, oh, you know, I made a million dollars last year. So, okay, what's your margin? How much are you actually keeping? What are you spending the money on? Is that money making any money back for you? And, you know, you, you might, I don't know how, how much you're on Instagram, but people just flaunt. Like I'm a six figure entrepreneur. I'm a seven figure entrepreneur. It's like, it's probably revenue. I want to know how much money you actually kept out of that revenue number. Yeah, but they're not going to share that because there's not a big <laughs> number and they're not that smart. They're probably doing drop shipping and making 5% net, right? No. So it, it's not anything to be impressed about and it's just clickbait. So when I'm explaining this to clients, the way I phrase it is uh, an American football analogy. It's your offense versus your defense. Mm-hmm. When you look at your offense, you're bringing in sales and you're racking up seven, eight figures. Fantastic. Well done. But what's your gross margin? What's your net margin? We need to understand that. What are the cogs? Are they high, low, or right? And then what else is in that expense category? Breaking it down, looking at trends. Is it needed? Is this helping the company grow or is it wastage? And we go through that line by line with the clients, looking at what the metrics are, making sense of it. And then specifically with marketing and ad spend, that's a big line item for most companies where it's like, hey, you're spending... 30% 30% of your revenue in marketing, but what's your ROI on that spend? Can right. you show me that? Like, what does that really mean? I'm spending 50 grand a month on Facebook ads, but I, are you making 50 grand back? Like, okay, well, that's still a loss because your margin is not included in that number. Right. And really helping them understand that your marketing agency might show you the number of impressions and it might sound like a fantastic number, but that doesn't mean anything. We've got to look at conversions. We've got to look at, the repeat business, the lifetime value, and all these other metrics that are easily fluffed if if uh, if you don't know what they mean. Do what? They're easily uh, misinterpreted and can be manipulated by certain companies to make them look as if they're doing a better job. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and I think that goes deeper, you know, the statements are great. Cash flow, balance sheet, income statement, those are all great. But I think KPIs... And each individual business is going to have different KPIs. But just like you said, return on ad spend, what are you making? If you're spending a dollar just to get a dollar back, you should probably stop. I mean, there's no, that's useless at that point, in my opinion. Yeah, unless you know your numbers to a point at which that dollar is then going to lead to upselling and future lifetime value, right? If you can justify it that way, then by all means, keep going. But a lot of people don't have that level of detail and understanding of one, what the numbers mean and two, how they're actually doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think when you understand the numbers behind your business and you know this better than anyone, you're able to scale, you know, your key performance indicators, you know, what's driving revenue, you know, what's not doing good for you. And you're ultimately able to continue pushing forward. Yeah. And that's the number one report that we create on the CFO side is monthly metrics report and a key performance report based on the metrics and then based on the financial statements too. And then more importantly, being able to explain that to non-finance people, that's the bridge yes. that you have to be able to cross to be successful at that. Right. And, and I imagine too, within Together CFO, there, there's probably sort of a language barrier behind between people who don't really understand what these numbers are. You know, for instance, in the finance world, the efficiency ratio, how much money are you making based off what you spend? And if I hear efficiency ratio, I'm like, what does that even mean? You know? but it's diving deeper and talking in a language they understand. Absolutely. And again, that means different things in different industries. If we look at efficiency ratio in a manufacturing plant, we're talking about efficiency of a man 
working on a job versus his downtime, right? If right. we're looking at different industries, that means different things as well. So it's down to being able to speak in a non-financial language to non-finance people and have them still understand that point. Yep, 100%. Okay, so we, we've talked about a lot and we didn't dive deep into the whole Forbes. So you, you write for Forbes. Did that come about after Together CFO or before? Yeah, after. Uh, it was uh, an opportunity that came up from me just helping people out and reporters out on a website called uh, Help a Reporter Out. <laughs> Funnily enough, so I would check that website out if there's any put in people that want to be featured or want to kind of contribute. And uh, I just kept adding value in my area of expertise, which is like business and finance. And then I built relationships and then got invited into the Forbes Council, which you have to meet a certain threshold and parameters to be uh, invited into that. And then all that went well. And now I've got, I don't know, maybe two years now, two years in with them and over a million articles read. So that's good. So yeah, that's kind of the Instagram equivalent for finance people for me. That's awesome. Yeah. Forbes is a huge publication. And I think when you associate somebody's name with Forbes, it just adds credibility for sure. But Casey, we're going to go and start wrapping up here. The ending question of my podcast is never about advice because I think advice is littered throughout the interview itself, but also you can find advice over the internet, just searching for it. So my question is a bit deeper. Why do you love what you do? And why is it important for entrepreneurs to also love what they do? I love what I do because I help people use the system that's written for us all in a better way that they just don't understand. Like the people who I help are not accounting, finance or legal professionals, and nor do they want to be. So I take that burden off them and I help them pay their fair share the same way President Trump's paying his fair share and Mitt Romney and all these other politicians and billionaires that have been using the system that was written by Congress for Congress and it's there for us all to use. So I'm opening the eyes of, of the business entrepreneurs out there to be able to get those same advantages that uh, the elite use. So that makes me feel good. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's very important to just be able to utilize the strategies that are going to help you move the needle forward at the end of the day. But Casey, I appreciate your time in where can my audience find you on social media or any of your websites? So the website is togethercf4.com. Um, that'll get you all the details you need. And then on Instagram, we're togethercf4, LinkedIn, uh, and pretty much everywhere. You can type in togethercf4 on any platform and we should pop up. Yeah, guys, I will link togethercfo's links and Casey's links in the description down below. Reach out to Casey if you find him on LinkedIn. That's where we got connected. Let him know what you thought about the episode. And Casey, I appreciate your time, man. Got it. Cheers. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneurism Podcast. We post episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 4 a.m. Central Time. We would greatly appreciate if you would head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. I'm Brady Morgan, your host. We'll see you next time.